And it's no accident that the, the African Union, in some sense, engages in a kind of faux pan-Africanism. From the History Watch Project, this is the History Watch podcast series, bringing you up close and personal with history in the real world, with some help from people who know what they're talking about. I am Audra Dipti, and on today's episode of the History Watch podcast series, we welcome Dr. Pablo Idahosa of York University. This podcast is an edited recording of a public lecture he gave for a Black History Month event at Carleton University, in which he discussed the politics of African displacement and problems with using the term diaspora uncritically. I will include a short bio of Dr. Idahosa's research profile and a link to his professional profile in the podcast notes. This podcast would not have been possible without the support of Migration and Diaspora Studies and the Institute of African Studies, both at Carleton University. While you will not hear her on this recording, we need to give a special acknowledgement to the radio host, Sarah Oniango, who facilitated the event on February 9th. Finally, I want to remind listeners that the History Watch podcast series is now available on iTunes and Stitcher. Don't forget to subscribe if you want updates on our newly released podcasts. Join us as we listen to Dr. Pablo Idahosa in our podcast, The Politics of Remembering, The Many Diasporas of Africa. So welcome everybody. Bonjour à tous. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I am Audra Dipti. I'm an associate professor at Carleton University. And it is absolutely wonderful to have you here for our 2018 Black History Month event. C'est pas souvent que j'ai, uh, j'ai l'occasion de présenter une, une intellectuelle comme professeur uh, Ida Hosa. Donc, comme uh, vous pouvez imaginer, pour moi, c'est, c'est un grand honneur. In grand plaisir. When we think of Black History Month, when it rolls around every year, there's a tendency for us to think about the events of historical significance to the black community. 2018, for example, marks 180 years since the British abolition of slavery. C'est 1070 ans depuis l'abolition de, de l'esclavage par la France. Uh, 130 years since the abolition of slavery by Brazil. We could also reflect on more recent events. 2018 marks 50 years since 1968. La mort de Martin Luther King, le premier congrès international des écrivains et artistes noirs à Montréal, the Olympics in which Tommy Smith and John Carlos took the Black Power salute, Walter Rodney riots in Jamaica, emergence of the Black Power movement throughout the Caribbean the Cultural Congress of Havana that brought together black intellectuals like Amy Césaire and C.L.R. James who contemplated the responsibility of intellectuals to address the problems of what they called the underdeveloped world. So from where we are sitting, in 1968 was, without question, a year of black heightened radicalism in which courageous people sought to question the normalized power of a racialized world. And power is what I argue Black History Month is really about. In his book, Silencing the Past, the Haitian scholar Michel Rolf Truyot asks us to contemplate and to expose the power behind the history that is commonplace. Black History Month is precisely the moment when we need to do this, to offer counter-narratives, to challenge accepted truths, 
And with that in mind, we have tonight invited our keynote speaker, Professor Pablo Idahosa, to offer his counter-narrative and his challenge to accepted truths. Uh, there's a saying in jazz that uh, if you don't have the time when you're playing a solo, you take it out of somebody else's time. Okay? <laughs> I'm not going to take uh, any time out of someone else's. But it is important to, I think, a little bit to know that two courses that I actually developed for the African Studies program and for Development Studies programs um, were actually on expressive culture. Uh, one was actually on African popular culture, and the other was a course on, on diaspora. But I've always been interested as a matter of existential moment in life, in part because of very consequential war in Nigeria. A number of people were displaced, and diasporas were created by this process. Years ago, I discovered, for example, when I went to Newfoundland, I discovered that there, a foundation by Catholics had been set up for people from what is now Edo State because of the Civil War. I discovered that there were Nigerians in Manitoba and Saskatchewan that had been set up by missionaries in Nigeria. So displacement and migration, they're part of life, sometimes because of conflict, sometimes because some young man decides he's had enough of his father's duress and where circumstances allow, he will, and sometimes she, will move to a different place. So displacements are only one piece and only one part, I think, of any discussion about humanity, but all of us individually. The issue is, what do we make of that? What happens to people when, in fact, they are displaced or they move on? Displacement's the hard word, the difficult word. And, of course, the classical illustration of this in the debates and the discussions around diaspora, historically, of course, are the Jewish diaspora. And, of course, a lot of ink a lot of noise have gone on about how we understand what a, a diaspora is. So when I talk about untangling, I, I, it's really to get us going. So I have a conception, of course, uh, and I borrowed freely from other people in, in so doing. But what we mean by the notion of displacement as well. People are displaced. When you move, you displace yourself, either voluntarily or coercively. But also what comes from that is the shifting nature of who we are, the identities, the subjects that we become, to use the postmodern term, rather than the identities if you want, right? The instability that is produced by that process, not just for us as individuals, but for us as communities when we relocate and we find ourselves in another place. How many people don't know this song? Too many young people. <laughs> he wishes he was home, he wishes he was in Africa. Right? This is one example of an identity. This is someone who goes down to the docks in Jamaica and imagines Africa. It's, it's what we might call slavery in the diasporic context. It's about the displacements, the brutal displacements, and sometimes choice of relocating, and the degrees and the extent to which you can imagine home, and the various ways in which you express that imagining home. Tiambi Zalesa calls about the hegemony of the Atlantic model of diaspora. And I think he's right, both in terms of a source of scholarship, but also a way of thinking about things like race. There are multiple ways in which people of African descent ex express their Africanness through religion, through various forms of expressive culture, through multiple sites of resistance, through different ways of coping. It's what I call 
a psychic desire, a prescription if you wish to go home, a belief about where you really come from and where you belong, and whence then you were dispersed. The second part of the song, which you didn't get to hear, is about a South African who wants to leave home, and he wants to get on the airplane and go to the west, to go to the north. And this is the post-colonial condition. It's a different kind of imagining around being African. So this is part of the new diaspora. There are many, many new diasporas, and the multiple identities that are expressed with that are multitudinous, from religion, from the ones that we're discovering about how many Muslims, for example, that there were in the so-called New World, and the way in which they retained their belief systems under the most extraordinary duress and fragmentation. One could go on about these multiple old ways in which people constantly renewed themselves through cultural expressions. I think one aspect of modernity that characterizes the world is precisely that cultural production that is unique. But Themba is an African from the continent who imagines his world as being better elsewhere. And that's not peculiar to Africa, but it is certainly peculiar in some senses to the post-colonial uh, condition. It's a form of post-coloniality and is part of most modern diasporas, or at least many uh, migrants. This is a, a distillation, and it's obviously a very, very simple way of managing multiple complex ways of understanding forms of diaspora, whatever that is, because we haven't said what it is. But one derives from enslavement, and is, you can't imagine it being other than that. And the other is one that comes from the legacy of imperialism. Now, I said I wasn't going to try not to spill too much ink over debates and discussions about diaspora, but it is one of these terms. It's used extraordinarily loosely. Or it's used in a way that's fixed, where we assume that we know what we're talking about. In other words, the assumption that because you've been displaced, or because you have in some ways a community of affinity that is away from the place that you had origins in, that somehow that's a diaspora. And it presumes, to use the language of some like Stuart Hall, a kind of a centered self, a centered identity around the self as an individual, but collectively or aggregatively as, as a community. But there is a presumption of something shared. It's not just that you are who you are, that you go to a place and you buy your pound of yam, or you pick up some stockfish somewhere and you greet someone for 10 seconds. It's more than that, that there is something thicker, deeper, in terms of some understanding of shared identity. And it can be something that's mutually of interest. There are old, deep, long, historical networks that traded with each other. And in fact, there's a lot of new historiography in terms of the advent, for example, of slavery in West Africa that looks at trading diasporas as being a component of that process. But what makes them a diaspora? That they have self-interest, that they communicate with each other about self-interest? That could just be a network. What makes it a diaspora? What I find interesting about a lot of attempts at analytical limits upon this idea of diaspora is many of them are post hoc. They're after the fact. In other words, you point to a number of communities that have done something and you say, these are the conditions of being diasporic. Old 
all new. And we'll come back to the newness of some of these themselves. For a diaspora to emerge out of a dispersal of a given population of a number of conditions have to be met. So is there a list, a set of necessary and sufficient conditions of what it is to be diasporic? So you don't go on a plane somewhere for a few weeks, come back and say, I'm, I'm diasporic. It would trivialize the idea of what I think a diaspora is to be. So some time needs to be involved. The, the question is, what drives the conception of being diasporic beyond the old diasporas, where you have some diminished sense of what home is because you've been away so long, and you reconstructed your sense of identity or, or yourself through the cultural artifacts and the cultural expressions that you draw upon to be yourself in the world of exclusion, discrimination, racism, and various forms of exploitation that you've experienced over a very, very great period of time. What is it beyond that that makes diaspora? Well, some claim is that it's, it could be utopian. Well, again, it's a condition that people impose upon us, right? I'm not trying to totally deconstruct the notion so that it has no value at all, but I'm pointing out that many people who invoke it invoke it in a way where its foundations are often based upon historical examples that in fact evaporate in the context of many new diasporas. One further one, process spatiality and periodization. There's a great quote from Stuart Hall where he talks about leaving uh, Jamaica and going to the UK and discovering his West Indianness when he got to the UK. But he also talks about diaspora in terms of his generation of people not being able to own what a younger generation can actually identify with. And he wasn't saying there's no intergenerational relationship. Rather, what he was saying was that it does mean different things to different <coughs> generations. That may sound like a trivial truism. Different generations create their own norms. They may draw upon the past, but they create them through a whole set of new values that have evolved and developed through their own generation. But nonetheless, uh, that periodization around new identities in diaspora are very, very important. And much of that has to do with process. And that process is, can be multi I can remember my father was away and it would take three weeks for a letter to come. You can communicate with somebody like this. You can send a transaction with somebody like that. Back in the day, we would send money to people whom we trusted to take back it didn't always get back, uh, but you tried anyway. <laughs> but all this to say is that that transactional process is part of the new ways. We might even say there are new conditions of knowledge that are part of a transaction that lend themselves to new forms of identity. It's easier to be X because of the speed at which you can be in a place, not literally, but virtually. So process... And spatiality is important. Changing conditions change the, the terms and how we understand the nature of being in another place. It's much easier to imagine home than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. Many of you are familiar with the website that Africa is not a country, right? And this seems to me is part of the new forms and ways in which people start to break down what I would say is one aspect of the pan-African identity that was in many ways part of that old uh, conception of diaspora. Let me explain. I wear a hat of development. I'm interested in development issues. And so one of the ways in which communities and groups 
find and maintain the establishment of relationships is actually through the vehicle and the transactions of helping communities at home, associations that bind together and, and come together for the purpose of assisting people at home. In the context of Africa, where what I would call these post-colonial diasporas have developed, one of the things that they do, that people have always done, is send money home. I recently sent my cousin in Wari some money so she could start up a bakery just before Christmas. I'm not a good person, it's what you do. But the point is I did that as an individual. I didn't do it as an act of development. I didn't do it with the idea that I was going to help Nigeria. So if Africa is not a country, so Nigerians are often not Nigerians in developmental terms. They are of their village. They're of their family. They're of their towns. But all that to say, one of the new conceptions of diaspora are Africans who are outside of the country, and the same could be said for the old diaspora, who would send packages, goods, money, home. And there are institutions, financial and economic institutions, through which those, those transactions take place. And in many ways, this is part of what I would call the reconstruction, because people often don't pay attention sufficiently, it seems to me, beyond the historical notion of trading diasporas and mercantile diasporas and so on, they don't pay attention to the ways in which these modern, more recent transactions are vehicles that bind families, bind communities, but also re-establish an identity with home. One of the interesting features of particularly in the context of, of continental Africa, but it's, it's informally worked in many parts of the world, is the way, for example, in which the African Union has recognized the diaspora. Not recognized them as selves, as subjects, as people with identities who express themselves in multiple ways through the different ways in which we understand them as members of community, but rather as people who are involved in transactions and development. And it's no accident that the, the African Union, in some sense, engages in a kind of faux pan-Africanism with respect to the historical pan-Africanism that characterized in many ways the old diaspora as an identity. It pays lip service to that. But on the other hand, it most definitively seeks to instrumentalize the notion of diaspora as a vehicle for transaction, as a vehicle through which Africans contribute to the investment in Africa. But it's a very peculiar kind of investment. Many of you have heard the figure that three years ago, $35 billion alone was repatriated and remitted back to Nigeria by Nigerians. But this wasn't Nigerians saying, please, take out. Put it in the development. It wasn't that. It was individual Nigerians giving to their families, giving home. So it's a peculiar kind of development. It's actually, I, you know, and there, there's a, a, an emerging literature on this. But my point is, is that many communities, and for many of you, quite surprising communities, one would expect that in the sheer volume, uh, that figure for Nigerians, and given the relative uh, wealth of Nigerians in, in the diaspora where they are, that that figure is, in fact, I think, fairly low. A country like Kenya, for example, 1.7 million two years ago, Africans from the continent are now, as diasporas always have, have contributed to always localized well-being. So the AU then instrumentalizes, it normativizes by saying diasporas are any Africans 
who live outside of Africa, with the caveat that, as long as they're contributing to development. So you're not a real diaspora if you don't take out, you know, and give, 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 give through your local communities too. There are a number of countries now, including Ghana, including Ethiopia, most definitively Eritrea, that mobilizes institutional resources within the communities to generate forms of income that end up in some degree through into investment in, in these different countries. But I want to be clear, when one talks about Africa, one doesn't talk about Africa per se, but one talks about Kenya, Nigeria, Zimbabwe. When we talk about the evolution of these identities, they come from a number of different sources, but they also come from a number of different ways of, we might say, the cadence, the spatial and the time and the process by which a number of people find themselves in circumstances of being away from where they are. And what they do, which has always been the case, very few migrants stay in the places that they stay and don't give something hope. It's like being cast out of your, your family if you do that. So that's always happened, but the fact that it's being formalized, it's being formalized in some pan-African way, institutionally, it's not as if someone's going to say, you know what, I'm a Burundian, let me give my money to Ethiopia. So it's African in a, in a deconstructed way, but at the level of the country in question. And I will go even further, that it reinforces, in fact, identities not just around the country, but also around your own ethnic group. It's not that you say, I'm going to give it to Edo people. No, it's not that. But that's the net effect of your contributions through framing things through diaspora. In 2015, Somalis, the two million Somalis, it's likely more, contributed something like around $1.5 billion to a country that, to say the least, is a difficult place to imagine that one can invest in. And yet, there are these mechanisms, many of them very informal, through which, in Toronto, in D.C., in Minneapolis, where people contribute once again and reinforce this sense of a relationship with home. Now, we haven't even talked about other facets or other characteristics of thinking about diaspora, some of which are religious. You can think of communities that may well be Nigerian. You don't lose your passport by being away. I, may, I mean this in a sense in which people have multiple understanding of contributing to their sense of identity in home. So it isn't only that you are Nigerian, but you contribute to your church. You contribute to building a mosque. You contribute through religion. Then there are the Africans within Africa. The vast majority of migrants, the vast majority of displaced people in Africa are in Africa. And that's generically true for any site or discussion of diaspora. The vast majority of people who are displaced, migrants, are people in the countries themselves. So when one thinks of Zimbabweans in South Africa, when one thinks of Nigerians as I met them in Cap Verde, the point about all this is that we often lose in the large frames of talking about diaspora to think about people within other countries who are Africans who have been displaced or who have chosen to move. So if we think then, about the changing and the reconfiguration of diaspora. We're not thinking per se about the destruction of the notion, but we have to have a rethinking about whom and why we want to place people in this idea around imagining home. So when we talk about the new and the old diasporas, we are really are talking about one deeply historical one that affected the world, but affected a particular parts of the world, these plantation economies of, of course, the Atlantic world, uh, and their senses of identities over time through these new ones, these post-colonial ones that take multiple configurations based upon a number of identities around the self. My father used to talk about, it's too early to tell, boy. It's too early to tell. 
as his way of not wanting a conversation. And this isn't a way for me to foreclose a discussion about these new identities, but I do think it is too early to tell about how we understand the multiple ways in which people reshape their selves and identities through their imaginings of what they understand home to be. I'll leave you there. Thank you very much. brings us to the end of this episode of the History Watch podcast, The Politics of Remembering, the Many Diasporas of Africa, in which we heard from Dr. Pablo Idojosa of York University. For more on Dr. Idojosa's work, be sure to look at the podcast notes. The History Watch podcast series is coordinated by Dr. Audra Dipti. To learn more about the History Watch Project, visit us at historywatchproject.com. Thanks for tuning in. Goodbye.